Welcome to Calling Us to Life, a podcast by Queen's Park Baptist Church in Glasgow. Please enjoy our catch-up on this week's sermon and join us later in the week on the podcast where we take a deeper dive into this week's talk. Enjoy. So, welcome to those of you who are joining us online or listening to the podcast. This is the last of our series in the Lord's Prayer. And as I was preparing for today, I was reminded again or or struck afresh that, you know what, these are not just words to pray, but a prayer to live by. If it's not just something to say, but actually, how does this change how I live? And today we're going to think about the last petition um, of the prayer. So let's read the whole of the prayer together just so that we have it in our our heads afresh. Um, The words will be in the screen, but if you're using an app or a Bible, then turn to Matthew chapter 6. So let's hear God's word to us as we continue in our worship. So Jesus said to his disciples, pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. Amen. I, yeah, I think I'm probably not alone in this. I love a good detective TV series or movie. I suspect, like many of you, one of the reasons I like it is I try and guess what's going to happen next before the big reveal and kind of like feel, oh, I'm cleverer than them. I got it. Um, And today I want us to be like detectives and do a little detective work to help us understand a little better what Jesus might be saying to us, encouraging us to pray here at the end of the Lord's Prayer. And in doing this detective work, we're faced with a series of, of choices, relatively small choices that nudges either one way or the other as we uh, dig into that. And the first major bit of detective work we need to do is with the first part of verse 13. Are we asking to be spared from temptation? Or are we asking to be spared from a testing or a trial, or the test or the trial. Her Bible reading was from the New Revised Standard Version, the NRSV. I like it, so that's what I use. And they go with time of trial. The original, in the Greek, the word time isn't there, but it's kind of implied, so it's okay to have that there. But if you were reading along, or if you have, you know, your Bible of choice is the NIV, or the New Living Translation, or I know some people like the New American Translation, then it doesn't say trial. It says temptation. And when you see this kind of difference in English Bible translations, it's often a sign that the Greek word in the original text has a range of meanings. And therefore, it can be difficult to translate that. Anybody who speaks a foreign language gets this because there's... 
There's words that some languages don't have, so you've got to kind of like pick a, a dynamic equivalent to it, or there's a word that kind of like carries different meanings. And most of the time, that's not too big a deal because the force of what's being said isn't dependent upon one word. And that's good news because it means that despite our various differences in whether we're reading our Bibles in English or Farsi or Afrikaans or French or whatever, I'm not going to go through all the languages that people speak here because we'd be here a long time. We don't need to worry too much about differences in the translation because we understand what's being said by the whole. It's not just dependent upon one word. So we can read our Bibles with confidence. But reading with confidence doesn't mean that we don't have to do the hard detective work of rolling our sleeves up and saying, what does this mean? What's it saying to us? Of rolling our sleeves up and going on our knees and praying, God, would you help me understand what this says? Of reading widely in the Bible so that the whole of Scripture can help us understand the smaller details. It probably means talking to each other about what we've been reading in our Bibles, learning from each other. Life groups are a great place to do that, just saying. It involves studying and listening to those that are skilled in the original languages and understanding the original cultures that the Bible's written in so that what they say can help us as well. It requires us to think theologically about the text and for the text to inform our theology, that dynamic to and throw. And we're going to do a bit of that today, or I'm going to take you through a bit of what... I was doing Graham kind of like when he was praying said I get a picture of kind of like threads that have come together as a tapestry there certainly were threads I'm not sure if it's come together as a tapestry I'll take that as a word of of faith so we've already made a start by noticing these these changes is it temptation or is it trial or is it test and the word that Matthew uses is the same word that Luke uses in his version of the Lord's Prayer. So if you go to Luke 11, you'll find the Lord's Prayer in Luke. And it's the Greek word eh, parasimos. I think that's how you pronounce it, and that's the pronunciation that I'm going to stick with. And it's one of those words that has a range of meanings. And so things are tricky for our translator friends. It does mean temptation but equally it can mean trial and equally it can mean test all three are legitimate options but they're not all the same thing are they I mean there's something different from being tempted to undergoing some kind of test or some kind of trial so we need some more help I think to kind of like say what is what is it that we're praying here? And we can get some of that help by looking at the context, both the immediate context and the bigger context. What does the whole of the Bible tell us about temptation and testing and trial? How does that feed in? Biblical scholar Scott McKnight suggests that this, the sixth petition of the prayer, should strike us, and here's his words, as preposterous and shocking. And Scott thinks for this for two reasons. Firstly, we know that God doesn't remove us from 
real life. Does he? I mean, that was Jesus' prayer, you know, that, they would, that we would remain in the world. So we're called to live in this world as witnesses to the good news of Jesus, as his representative and agents of the kingdom of God. We're called to participate in his mission of evangelism, of, of seeing people being saved, of healing, of liberation, of transformation. We're not called to remove ourselves. We live in the world. And to live in the world means that we face temptations. It means we're confronted with challenges, which we might describe as trials, or situations which test our faith or test our character. Some of that is good and, and really important. I used to work in construction, and when the, the concrete wagon would arrive and pour concrete, especially for the foundations, we would have to put some concrete in a cube and it would be sent to East Bride to the testing centre and they would test it to make sure that the concrete was strong enough to take whatever we were building on it. And if it failed the test, we had to dig the concrete out and start again. Tests are important. But we know that because we are called to live in this world, bad things happen to good people. Bad things even happen to godly people. And bad things happen to people that pray. So Scott thinks it's preposterous if we think that from this, what we're asking is, let's never be tempted, let's never face a difficulty, let nothing bad ever happen to me. It ain't going to happen. Being a Christian, praying doesn't exempt us from life happening to us. The petition not to lead us into testing is shocking. Because in the surface of it, it appears that it's God who's going to test or tempt us. And yet we know that God is not the author of any bad thing that happens to us. We're reminded at the very start of this prayer of that when we're instructed to call him Abba, to call him Father. Now, there are many people, some of whom, not maybe, some of whom will be in this room who didn't experience healthy love from their father. Yet we know that a father is meant to care for and love and protect his children, even if that wasn't our experience, our experience of that was patchy. God is perfect in all his ways, which means that his fatherly love towards us is perfect. It's unconditional. And as I was preparing for this morning, <clears throat> I got the sense that for some people this morning, this verse is triggering. It's triggering because somewhere along the line you've come to believe that God's love towards you is dependent upon you passing a test or measuring up to some kind of mark. A test that either proves you're worthy of being loved or a test that shows that you love God enough for him to love you back. Neither of these things are true. Both are lies, but there are lies for us easy to start to believe. God loves you unconditionally. 
He's always for you. Always with you. Even if you don't feel it, God is with us. God has always loved you. Even before we turned to him. While as the Apostle Paul reminds us we were still sinners, God loved each and every one of us. That's the great truth that we read in Romans 5. God proves his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I don't know about you, but that blows my mind. Sit with that for a moment. Say to yourself, remind yourself, I am loved by God. And this means that there is no test that we need to pass to receive God's love. Indeed, if you go back to the last slide, Erin, thanks. The truth of the good news is that there is no test that we can pass to deserve or receive God's love. Jesus frees us from the tyranny of passing a test of coming up to the mark in order for us to know that God loves us. God loves us all. God loves you for who you are and he loves you just as you are. You can go to the next slide now, Aaron, thanks. There's great truth in the saying familiar to many of you, I am sure, that God loves us so much he's unwilling to leave us as he found us. And this speaks not of our needing to perform or our needing to pass some kind of test. But it speaks of God's plan of redemption and sanctification. Because God loves you, he doesn't want to see you stuck with your hurts and your wounds. He doesn't want to see you trapped in negative cycles and habits. But he calls each one of us to freedom and wholeness. He wants each one of us to grow in Christ-likeness. So he loves you just as you are. You can't earn his love, but he calls you to grow in him. Through the ups and downs of life, whether we're doing well or we're doing terribly, God doesn't love you less or more. He just loves you, full stop. To say it again, there's no test that you need to pass, nor mark that you need to come up to to know and receive God's love. And while this is true, the reality for many of us is that we know in our heads somewhere that God loves us, but in our hearts, in our bones, deep within ourselves, we have doubts or we just don't feel loved by God. Things have happened to us that make it hard for us to experience love. And specifically, I want to speak into the area of rejection. Because various kinds of rejections, big and small we experience, can be a barrier to us receiving the love of God. Rejection can be a, like a limpet on a rock. You know, when you go to the seaside and you see these limpets stuck onto the rock... Hard to move, and even once it's moved, it kind of leaves a mark. 
And I want you to pray. If rejection is an issue that you struggle with, I want to, to pray into that. Now, I'm going to ask you to do something. Because praying into kind of like rejection wounds that we have is something that we need to repeat. There's a nice kind of like time period that we just entered that's called Lent between now and Easter. And if rejection, if experiencing God's love is something that you struggle with, you know it in your head, but you don't feel it in your heart and bones, then each day between now and Easter Sunday, pray just a simple prayer. Father God, I thank you that you love me. Help me to receive and experience your love. Heal my wounds of rejection. Pour your healing love into my life. I thank you that I'm your child. Help me to live out of that identity and not the lies that I and others have told myself. Help me to know that I am loved by you and to experience that. And there's nothing particular special about praying between now and Easter. Recently, um, in the freezer at the point, I keep some pita breads as a wee snack in case I get a bit hungry. And I went into the freezer and I broke one in half, put it in the, the toaster and took it out and then bit into it and hot air burst out and burnt just the corner of my lip. And it was quite sore. And um, it then meant that kind of like a, a scab started to form on it. And when I tried to open my mouth, I could feel that it was going to bleed. So for quite a lot of days, I had to put an ointment on it to, to, to help the healing process, to stop a scab forming, to stop that bursting open again. And just as physical wounds need an ointment for the healing process to take place, so when we're wounded emotionally and spiritually, we need the ointment of God applied to that wound to bring healing. So we need to persist in prayer. Help me experience your love. Heal this wound. Bring me into greater freedom and wholeness with you. Another thing that is helpful to do when we pray all around these kind of issues is, is to respond physically. Either by holding our hands out or quite often when we speak about God's love and rejection, people feel a pain somewhere in their body. Place your hand wherever that pain is. I want to just pray into some of that right just now. So I'm just going to kind of like lead us in prayer. And you perhaps want to do that just now. You perhaps want to just reach your hands out, place your hands somewhere. Or you might just want to sit still. That is, that is okay. And of course, um, at the, towards the end of the service, there'll, there'll be the prayer corner. You might want somebody to stand with you in prayer. But let me just pray for us together because I think every one of us, to a lesser or greater degree, We've had some kind of rejection in our life. Abba Father, we thank you that you are a loving God. That you love us and you love us unconditionally. We confess that we cannot earn your love and repent for when we have tried to do this. Many of us carry wounds and hurts, which means we don't find it easy to experience your love and to know that we are loved by you. 
We thank you that you're the God who heals. And we pray that our wounds and hurts which stop or limit us experiencing your love and knowing we are loved by you would be healed in Jesus' name. We pray specifically into issues of rejection which, like limpets on a rock, have stuck to us and many that we have struggled to accept the truth of your love towards us. Break these limpets of rejection from our hearts and minds, from our very being. Heal the wounds where these limpets of rejection have stuck and replace them with your healing grace and love we ask. We ask this knowing you are our Abba who loves and cares for us. And so we ask you to help us to experience your love more and more, to live from our identity as your loved and precious children. Amen. Let's return to, we'll get our uh, magnifying glass and deer stalker hat back out and dig a bit deeper into investigating this passage. We had the slide up earlier, kind of like where the NIV and lots of other translations would translate this Greek word, word uh, periasmos, as temptation. But many, perhaps most, contemporary commentators say, actually, we're probably better to go with trial. Theologian David Bentley Hart, biblical scholar Scott McKnight, N.T. Wright, R.T. Franz, who wrote a big, huge commentary on uh, Matthew, they all suggest this is either a trial or a test. And I think I'm going to side with our learned friends. It doesn't mean that temptation isn't part of this. A trial or a test can include temptation, but if we just pray temptation, it's not really a trial or a test. Hope that makes sense. Testing and trials more inclusive. Some commentators think that Jesus had something very specific in mind. So N.T. Wright has the great trial. Um, there was an expectation in Jesus' day that God's people were about to face a great trial. I'm not sure that's what it is. It's maybe an accurate way to translate it and N.T. Wright, somebody that's hard to argue against in some respects. But again, returning to the context of the prayer, the context of the whole prayer is about the stuff of everyday life. It's about saying your kingdom come, your will be done. Pressing into the implications of whose rule do I live under? It's about praying for bread. It's about praying for sin. It's about praying for the injustice and offences that we have, we have done to people and that we have received that forgiveness might flow and bring that healing. It's about everyday stuff. And so I think this last petition is about the stuff of everyday life, of things that happen to us all the time. But who is doing the leading here? Is to say, don't bring us into this time of test. Are we asking God not to do that? I think the simple answer is no. 
God doesn't lead us into temptation which would cause us to sin, nor does he test us that would cause us to sin as well. And I say this for two reasons. Firstly, the Apostle James is clear, crystal clear. He says, no one when tempted should say, I'm being tempted by God. For God can't be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. And secondly, as we've already touched upon, we know what God's character is like. God is good. He is not fickle. When we talk about God not changing, one of the things that we're saying is God's character is dependable. His goodness doesn't change. He is good all the time. I know that can be a bit of a trite saying. I can remember being in New Orleans years and years ago, just after Katrina, and folk would say, God is good, and the response was, all the time. But there's a truth in that, that God is good. His character doesn't change. And the people of Jesus' day, and the surrounding cultures, and the, the Gentile cultures, their idea was of gods who were fickle, who changed all the time. Here's God who doesn't change. His goodness is steadfast. So God can't do evil All things are not possible for God. God can't lie. And he can't do evil. He doesn't change. We do not need rescued from God, which is what the next clause says, isn't it? Rescue us from who are we to be rescued from? Are we to be rescued from God? No, we be to be rescued from evil or the evil one. So what we have here is what's technically called, this is a hard thing to say on a Sunday morning, a synonymous parallelism. So what's one of them when they're at home? A synonymous parallelism is basically saying the same thing twice, but the second part of the sentence explains the first or illuminates the first. So the second part of the sentence of verse 13, but rescue is from the evil one, which can also be translated as evil, helps us say, I think, that it's not God who's tempting us or tests us. That this is about the winds and buffets of everyday life. that in many respects, it's a repetition of praying, your kingdom come, your will be done. Would it be made manifest in my life? Would it be shown in how I'm doing? Would more of your kingdom come of your love and your forgiveness of goodness rather than hate and jealousy and lies and death and destruction? As someone who is following Jesus, we've already been transferred, haven't we? Our location has changed from under the rule of evil to being under God's rule. But we still live in a world where evil and the works of evil are all too evident. We just need to open a newspaper, see our news feeds on our phones or watch the TV. To pray rescue us from evil 
There's a danger in that, isn't there, that we kind of like develop some kind of like paranoia of thinking that the devil's out to get us or that when I go to the kitchen cupboard and open it to get some tea, there's no tea left, that it's been the work of some great evil or a demon nicked my tea. No, if I run out of tea, it's my fault. I forgot to go to the shops or forgot to ask somebody else who was going to the shops to get some. And I think an important thing for us to remember in the whole prayer again is that I'm not just praying for me. It's always in the plural. It's always about us. So it's not just rescue me. It's rescue us. Us in terms of you gathered here. Who we do life together with. But us also in terms of my neighbor the city of Glasgow, this country, the whole world. It's a petition which helps form in us a longing that as followers of Jesus, we wouldn't see people suffer, that we wouldn't see evil reign, but that we would see God's goodness at work and reign. That we wouldn't see people being led into sin and abuse happening, but we would see people being led into freedom and life in Jesus. It reminds us that we live on a battlefield and that while we know God is victorious, we have an enemy who, as Peter says, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. To pray this is to join in the battle. And one of the ways that we join in the battle is not just by praying it, but by living out the prayer. It's pointless to pray, forgive us, if we then don't actually enact that. We remind ourselves that God is our Father. We hallow his name. We join in the battle by praying that his kingdom would come in my life, in my street, in my area, in my school, in my uni, in my workplace. We do battle by seeking God's kingdom, admitting that even what I think is good can be twisted and wrong, that only God is good. So my will and desire needs to be shaped by his. We join the battle by praying for bread and seeking the evil of, of hoarding where some people have too much and others not enough. We do battle by seeing captives released, by naming that which is wrong, but seeing forgiveness at work. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us, rescue us. In many of their Bibles, the prayer doesn't actually end there, does it? There's a wee doxology at the end. Some words of praise. Now, pretty much every Bible scholar has agreed that that wasn't actually part of the original prayer. But it's an early addition. 
I think one of the reasons that it's still in our Bibles is, do you know what? It's the logical conclusion of what we've just prayed. To say, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. That's where the prayer leads us to. It's to say, I can pray this with confidence because I know who you are and in whom I'm putting my trust. Amen. I'm going to hand over to Karen and the team again.